9, Ezra chapter 9. I don't have anything to say here today that most of the men of God that are in this building have not said at one time or another preached. That is simply what I feel in my heart today. And so in Ezra chapter 9 and beginning with verse number 1, the Bible said, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, this is Ezra writing, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished or astonished until the evening sacrifice. I want to direct your attention today in verse number 2 and talk to you about the mingling of the Holy Seed. The mingling of the Holy Seed. One more time, ask the Lord to help us today, would you, before you're seated. Lord Jesus, I come to you today confessing freely that I am nothing have no ability, no talent. I simply make myself available to you. Would you somehow use this instrument of clay and help me to faithfully represent your will here today. Lord, I thank you for your presence we've already felt, your word we've already heard. Would you now speak to us yet one more time? Enable us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and understand, and a will to obey. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen, amen. God bless you today. You may be seated. Now before I really say what I want to say today, I have to, I have to give you a little bit of a history lesson, or just a refresher on what this is about today. But Suffice it to say that God's people had been taken into captivity into the land of Babylon as a result of many, many years of backsliding and rebellion and disobedience and God attempting over and over again to entreat them, to warn them, sending prophets to them that they would not heed and they continuously did what God told them not to do, etc. And so now they had been in captivity for many years. 
And then through a process, uh, the Bible tells us that during the reign of the King Cyrus, King of Persia, that the Lord allowed a remnant to return to Jerusalem. And there they began, first of all, the task of rebuilding the temple. The rebuilding of the temple that Solomon had built, that had been destroyed, torn down, was a project that took approximately 17 years to complete. But it finally was completed. The temple was rebuilt, not quite to its former glory or magnificence, but there it was again after those many years. Then another 62 years or so go by after its completion, and this man, Ezra, the Bible calls him Ezra the scribe, he also comes from Babylon out of captivity into Jerusalem, and uh, his purpose and his role, his function, according to what it says here in this book, was to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. In other words, it wasn't enough that there was a temple standing again. It takes more than a building uh, for people to be where they need to be with God. They needed somebody that would begin to call their attention back to the law of God and the statutes and the commandments that had been given to them. Thank God for a preacher. And also to restore proper worship. It had been many, many, many years since they had participated in the sacrifices and, and all the, the ordinances that had been instructed to them. And so that's Ezra's task, and that's his mission, his mandate. And so he has set about to do this, and and then in the middle of all this, the, the Bible here says that he is told about the people who have once again during this time, the 17 years of the rebuilding of the temple, and then the 62 years since the temple has been completed up to this point in time, some 79 or 80 years, amen, that during that time, the people of God, this remnant that had come out of Babylon back to Jerusalem, had once again begun to intermarry with the heathen nations around them, and thus were threatening to start the whole pitiful cycle all over again. The cycle that we heard about so well last night through this good elder. Amen. Let me just take a little bit of time here and tell you, amen, you may get tired of hearing about the doctrine of separation, amen, but I'm here to tell you that God has always insisted on the separation of his people from all of the peoples of the land, amen, you can go all the way back, amen, to the land of Egypt where Joseph was, was uh, placed there by divine, uh, divine 
uh, will, I believe, and, and then he rises to power because there's a famine coming. And when the famine comes, God needs somebody in position uh, to help his chosen people to be able to survive the famine. So Jacob comes and, and all of his sons, and, and their, their lives are spared because uh, Joseph is in a place to help them and to supply them with food and nourishment. Amen. But there they stayed, and they continued to multiply and have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren until they became very, very numerous. And the Bible says that there came then a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. There was no allegiance there to these people. And feeling threatened by their alarming increase of numbers, he pressed them into slavery. Let me stop here a moment and say this. I do not believe that the slavery of the people of Israel was altogether a bad thing. In fact, because of the time and the circumstances that they were in, it was actually God's way of preserving these people as a people. Human nature being what it is, if they had been allowed to just grow and multiply, they would have begun to intermingle with the Egyptians, marry with them, and they would have been obliterated as a race of people. Not only that, but the 12 tribes of Israel would have begun to fight and to war with one another. And so slavery was necessary in order to keep them separated, number one, as a people from the Egyptians, because the Egyptians would have nothing to do with them. They considered the slaves to be less than beasts of burden. Amen. So it was in order to keep them separated as a people and to keep them unified. I want to just say something real quick here today. What kind of calamity is God going to have to visit upon the church in, this last, in these last days in order to keep his people separated and to keep them unified? Amen. And so in spite of the passage of many years, there was no intermixing with the Egyptians because they were slaves. And their uh, common plight of slavery kept them unified. They had something similar in experience. Many years would go by and then Moses would come. And at the time of the plagues, God told them very specifically, he said, he said that you may know that the Lord does put a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Amen. I don't know what it's going to take for some people to accept the fact that we are different from the Egyptians. If you haven't come to grips with that, it's high time that you do so today. Deal with it, honey. We are God's people. We're not like everybody else and never will be. When he led them out of Egypt into the wilderness, 
amen, while they were journeying, because the promised land was not right next door to Egypt, but even during the years that they traveled and sojourned in the wilderness, God also kept them as a separated and a distinct group of people while they were journeying through a strange land, while they were foreigners, while they were in a place where they did not belong. Amen. They could feel somewhat alienated and somewhat estranged from the people around them. Although they had one close brush with disaster, and the Bible gives it to us in the 25th chapter of Numbers. I hope you'll bear with me here a while today. Amen. And the Bible says that the king of Moab had found him a hireling prophet to try to curse God's people because he felt threatened by them. Amen. And Balaam honestly tried. He tried three different times to curse God's people, but instead of a curse, a blessing came out. You can't curse what God has blessed. Hallelujah. Amen. And so, because that ended in failure, Balaam found a way. He found a way to bring the curse of God upon the people themselves. He started working his way among the people and started saying, hey, check them out. Hey, what do you think about that girl? Hey, what do you think about that boy? And they started noticing the daughters of Moab. Amen. And they started marrying them and taking them and committing fornication with them. The Bible said they began to commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moab. And that would have been bad enough if that's as far as it went. Amen. But their attachments and their relationship to them also led to something else. And the Bible said that Israel joined himself to Baal Peor. They started worshiping an idol god. I'm talking about not very far away from Egypt. I'm talking about not long after they were slaves. They're already starting to bow down to other gods. You know why? Because they started meddling with people that were around them. Amen. It got so brazen. It got so blatant that the Bible says one man brought one of these girls and was committing iniquity with her in front of the tabernacle. And all that Moses could do was stand there and weep. It made God so angry that he spoke to them and he said, amen, that they were to take the heads of Israel and they were to hang them up before the sun. You know where God laid the blame? He laid the blame with the leadership. Because if the leadership had done something from the beginning, they could have stopped it before it ever got this bad. And it was only because Amen, of a young man who was suddenly filled with righteous indignation. A young man by the name of Phineas, who was sick and tired of what was going on among his people. A man whose heart was sold out to God. Amen, it made him angry, it made him mad. In other words, he got a bad spirit in today's language. 
Why is it that the ones that get fired up enough to start doing something about it, they're the ones that get labeled the troublemakers and the people who have a bad spirit when the truth of the matter is that some of us know how it's supposed to be and we get fired up, amen, when we start seeing happen in the kingdom of God what ought not to be happening. And he ran and took a javelin, and he nailed them to the ground. And then the anger of God was turned away, but not before 24,000 of them had died as a result of a curse that Balaam could not put on them, but they put on themselves. Give the Lord a hand clap tonight. seated and so when they finally did get to amen the brink of the promised land Moses is about to die uh, the leadership is going to pass to Joshua and before he dies he assembles the people once more most of whom amen had no recollection of the things that had happened when they came out of Egypt because only those that were 20 years and younger when they stepped out of Egypt ever lived to see the promised land with two exceptions. The rest, amen, had either grown up in the wilderness or had been born while they were there. And so you have the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book of the second telling, because Moses is looking at a whole new generation, and he's wanting them to know everything that happened. And run it by them one more time amen never take for granted man of god that everybody out there knows what you're talking about preach it again run it by again there's kids growing up there's new people coming in they need to hear it all over again they need to hear one god all over again they need to hear acts 238 and so on and so forth and so he tells it to them and in the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, amen, by God's divine anointing, he gives them a very, very important principle. He says, when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and every, every, uh, seven nations greater and mightier than thou, and when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods, so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. And he goes on to say, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Did you hear what I said? They were to be a holy people. They were to be a special people above all people. You hear people say, you just think you're better than anybody else. Well, I'm going to tell you, amen, I am a part of God's people. 
and he wants a holy people, a special people above everybody else. And it was the principle, unfortunately, tragically, that they would violate again and again and again to their own hurt and to their own destruction. Most all of their problems, amen, came about because of their intermingling with these other nations. Please stay with me tonight. That I preached a message some time back on a strange attraction. Why is it that Israel was repeatedly attracted to these same people over and over and over again? Every time you see the problem, it's the same nations mentioned. Why is it that they were attracted to them? Well, this isn't my message tonight, but I'm just going to tell you real quick. The main reason why they were attracted to them was because they were more attractive. You know why those Israelite boys chose some of those other girls instead of a little old one God girl? Because they had all the paint on and all the doodads and they were dressed sensually and seductively. They bared the leg. They showed their flesh. They walked around and they batted their eyes with that come on look. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know why some women in Pentecost are reaching back and picking up some of those things in order to keep the attention of their own husband? Because after a while, some fellas get to thinking these poor little Pentecostal women just look too plain. I'm just going to preach what I feel here today. We need to take some pressure off of our apostolic women. And we need to let them know over and over, there is no beauty like their beauty. Merle Norman can't do it. Mary Kay can't do it. There is a glow and a blush in the cheeks, amen, that no rouge can ever put there. It comes from Holy Ghost anointing. It comes from a life that's sold out to God. You can be seated. So there is a word that appears several times through the Old Testament, and it is the word affinity. And I want you to remember this. It is the word affinity. And the word affinity means, first of all, to enter into a relationship as by marriage. Affinity. Now, one of the most notorious violators of this was none other than King Solomon. Way back in 1 Kings chapter 3, mind you, the very same chapter that tells us about the Lord coming to him in a vision and offering him anything he wants, and he chooses wisdom, in that same chapter you find these words. 
that Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. Now, there's a reason why the kings did this in these old days. It was to solidify their kingdom. When they would enter into an affinity and they would marry a daughter of another king, it was a way of entering into a contract with that nation. In other words, now we're related. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And we'll just learn to get along. And we'll just extend the right hand of fellowship. David didn't have to do that. He got the kingdom by God's power, by God's help. God put him on the throne by his own design. But way back at the infancy of Solomon's reign, he thought that the first thing he needed to do from a political and tactical standpoint was to marry the daughter of Pharaoh. But here's the problem. He brought her into the city of David. And when she came, she brought her entourage with her. And she brought her clothing with her. And she brought her idols with her. And she brought her language with her. And she brought her customs with her. And it became the first of many compromises and violations. So much so that Solomon, amen, would do it to the nth degree till he had 300 wives 700 concubines, all intending, amen, to secure his kingdom by joining an affinity with these other nations. Lord, help me today. We're not talking about some little old Joe somewhere. We're talking about one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. Amen. Say, well, what's the problem with it? Let me show you what the problem with that is. At the end of his life, amen, at the end of the life of a great man, you don't find Solomon worshiping in the temple that he built to God, but you find him offering sacrifices in idol temples that he learned from his wife. And that's not all. Solomon also built, he built there, in Jerusalem, an altar to the idol Molech. The idol Molech was one of the worst idols of those ancient times. This was the idol that demanded that you cause your children to pass through the fire and to offer them up as human sacrifices to the idol Molech. I'm telling you, Solomon didn't just build a temple. He built an altar to Molech that would stand for over 300 years before it was torn down. Amen. Lift your hands and talk to the Lord for just a moment. Amen. You can be seated. Another great violator was another man who we think of as a good king. His name was Jehoshaphat. Remember Jehoshaphat? He was the one that had been set upon by the Ammonites and the Moabites and the children of Seir. 
that he was completely powerless numerically and militarily, amen, to confront that force. Here comes the man of God and says, this is not going to be your fight. This is going to be God's fight. And so instead of getting ready for war, they got ready for worship. And they worshiped, saying, Amen, the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And while they were worshiping, God brought them great deliverance. The Ammonites and the Moabites ambushed the children of Seir. And then they began to kill one another. Until when they got through with their worship service and looked, they were all dead bodies falling to the ground. And Jehoshaphat got to thinking, wow, man, isn't this something? What do they hear about this at conference? And he got all proud and lifted up in himself. And so in 2 Chronicles 18 and verse 1, the Bible said that Jehoshaphat, he reached the point where he had riches and honor in abundance. And that would be okay. But then it says, and joined in affinity with Ahab. One of the most wicked kings in all of the pages of the Old Testament. You remember that the kingdom was divided at this point. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, and Ahab was the king of the other tribes of Israel. Praise the Lord. But he had for his wife an absolutely, amen, uh, an absolutely devilish woman by the name of Jezebel. Of all people, for Jehoshaphat to seek out, amen, for fellowship. But he got to where he felt like he was secure enough. He could handle it. He was big enough. He could handle it. He was strong enough. He could handle it. And so they started entering into this fellowship. After all, we are related, you know. They're Israelites too. Lord, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. After all, they're one God people too, or used to be. And why can't we all just get along? But here's the problem, honey. When he started going over there and sitting down at Ahab's table and eating with him, there was a young man that was going with him. It was his, his son. His son's name was Jehoram. And while he was sitting with his daddy at Ahab's table, Jehoram got to notice in this cute girl there. And they struck up a romance. And he ended up marrying her. And she was the daughter of Ahab. So that when this good man Jehoshaphat dies, Jehoram becomes king. And the Bible says he had the daughter of Ahab to wife and he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, maybe you can handle it, but what about the kids that are coming on? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. So then we come to our text tonight, and here it is again, the same sad story. And I could have given you many other instances, but 
I just wanted to show you briefly, amen, what a detriment this had always been to God's people. And this was the reason for their downhill slide. And this was the reason God was mad at them to begin with. And this was the reason that judgment had come. And now Ezra, amen, who has come from Babylon all excited because the temple's been rebuilt and the remnants there and we're going to get back to where we used to be and we're going to have the presence of God and we're going to have the blessings of God like we always had it like I heard my my father's tale about it amen we're going to have it again and when he gets there he finds out to his shock and horror amen that the people the remnant those that had come out of Babylon have already begun to intermarry with those other nations and he knew that this would threaten to bring them to the very brink of extinction amen so once again the bible has this to say that the princes and the rulers were chief in this trespass it came from the leadership down you know what i'm simple enough to believe this that there are people that will just live right if you'll preach right it's not the people that are demanding change it's coming from the leadership Oh, you're wearing out on me already. And I'm still on my foundation. So the Bible says that Ezra, he said, oh, well, you know, that's the circumstances that we're living in. After all, this is 2002. And this is just the reality of our times. And this is what we have to deal with and so we'll just try to make the best out of a bad situation no that's not the way he reacted he reacted with horror and with disbelief and the bible here said that he sat down astonished all afternoon and when he was finally able to speak at the evening sacrifice he said i arose from my heaviness and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up into the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass until this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to spoil, and to confusion of faith, as it is at this day. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and to give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Jerusalem and in Judea, or in, Jer uh, in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forgotten thy commandments. After you did all that, we're going back and starting the process all over again. 
He said, which thou hast commanded thy servants, the prophets, saying, the land into which you go to possess it, it is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people of the land, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now, therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it an inheritance to your children. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and from our great trespass, seeing that our God hath punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hath given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations, wouldst thou not be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us so that there should be no remnant or escaping? Lift your hands and pray. I'd like to ask a question today. Where are those that will be horrified? Where are those that will sit in astonishment? Where are those that will hold people responsible instead of looking the other way? I know I'm preaching to the choir here today because most of whom is sitting in front of me today are people from good churches with zealous pastors, and God bless you for that. You are blessed beyond your wildest imagination. But I'm talking about something, brother, that has happened in Pentecost. From the north to the south, from the east to the west. And as a result of this intermingling, and as a result of this affinity, amen, they had then on their hands a mongrel race. The word mingle means to mix, to blend, to bring together, to become part of a mixture, a combination or group, to braid, like taking hair and braiding it so that you don't really know what belongs to what, and to be welded together, amen, webbed together as transverse threads of cloth, uh, of cloth interwoven into a fabric, amen, so that each one loses their separate identity and becomes part of a new whole. Amen. Let me tell you how God felt about a mingled people and about a mongrel race. Bear with me just a little longer. Amen. The Bible said in Psalms 106 and verse 34, did not, they did not destroy the nations concerning which the Lord commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works, and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. In Jeremiah chapter 25, God is pronouncing judgment on his enemies, but not just his enemies, he says, and upon the mingled people to make them a desolation, to make them an astonishment and a hissing and a curse. And in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 1, amen, the, through 5, it says that the day of the Lord is near and the sword shall come upon Egypt and all the mingled people. The judgment is going to be the same upon the heathen and on the mingled people. 
and I'm getting there. But this is the reason, ladies and gentlemen, why you have to have boundaries. This is the reason why you have to have a perimeter. This is the reason why you have to say you can only go to this point, but you can't go any farther. And we are living in a day, amen, where the boundaries have been taken away. Brother McMullen said it last night, the blurring of the lines. It's not happening now. It's already happened. We're living in the aftermath of it. You can go into so-called one God churches today and not see one woman who even vaguely resembles old-time Pentecost. I went to a wedding at a so-called oneness church where the assistant pastor had a full-grown beard. Your pastor is not being unkind to you when he tells you you can't go over there. You can't run with them. I don't care what they do. I don't care what their pastor says is okay. I don't care what's acceptable. The Bible said in Deuteronomy 32 and 8, he set the bounds of the people. Why? Because in verse 9 he said, for the Lord's portion is his people. God wants to have a people that are identifiable, that are distinct, that are unique, that are separate, that are exclusive, that are peculiar in the sense of that a treasure is peculiar. God wants to look down on this earth and know them that are his. And so he set a bounds for his people. Your pastor is not doing anything that God hasn't ordained to be done a long time ago. And so then, in Proverbs 22, verse 28, a verse you know so well, it says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set. We have not preached one new thing so far at this conference that we have been, been hearing preached for years. I don't know why it should be this quiet here today. I've been hearing for years, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. If you don't care whether God receives you, do whatever you want. But if you want God to receive you, you've got to come out. Now listen, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to what I really want to say today, and, 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 and then that'll be it. This is why the enemy seeks to breach our boundaries. 
and to break them open. Amen. As the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 10, and there was a, a judgment there being pronounced against the king of Assyria. And God was going to judge this king of Assyria because he had made this boast. Listen carefully. He said, I, this is the king of Assyria talking now. God said, you said, I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasures. And he said, I've robbed their riches. And he said, I've done it like one gathers eggs out of a nest. And he said, and there was none that moved the wing, nor opened their mouth or peeped. He said, I robbed their treasures like stealing eggs out of a nest. And there wasn't even an old mother hen there to make a ruckus about it. Well, bless your pea-picking heart. This is one bird that's going to flap his wings. That's going to make a noise. That's going to raise a ruckus. I'm going to get all bent out of shape when the devil tries to take prayer out of my church. I'm going to get all worked up when worship begins to vanish. I'm going to get all worked up into a bother when I see worldliness coming into the sanctuary. to some of the new converts in our church. And this is somebody who has been in church for some 30 years. Said to one of our newer converts, you don't really know Brother Alviar. You ought to be in that office with them. You'll see a different side of him than you've ever seen. He's not so nice like you think he is. And you know what? I don't even deny it. I plead guilty and proud of it. You get on the wrong side of this book, me and you are going to tangle. And you're going to see a side of your preacher you've never seen before. I don't care if you've gone hunting together. 
I don't care if you've gone fishing together. I don't care if you're even indirectly or directly related. You're going to see a different side of him. Because there are some men that are still zealous about their nest. And when the enemy reaches in and begins to try to steal, take away their young folks, take this away, take that away, it's going to be somebody start clapping their wings and peeping and making a rocket. I don't know what time I started preaching, so I don't know how long I've been up here. All I know is I got up here early. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, let me just go over something again real quick. We live in a hostile environment. I don't know if you've awakened to this fact yet, but not everybody's happy you have the Holy Ghost. And not everybody's thrilled over you being one God. And certainly not when you start talking it at the table in the family reunion. When they want to talk about the ball games. They want to talk about the latest movies. And you say something like, boy, we sure had church last night. Oh, man. We ran the aisles, we leaped, we jumped. You've heard of conversation starters? That's a conversation stopper. Well, hallelujah. And you can't be in the church and run with the world. You can't do it. I know that's not new, I'm just telling you. You can't do it. The Bible said, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Young man, young lady, amen, you've got to stay out of their cars. You can't go to their homes. They want you to sit down and watch their television with you. They want to pass you their beer. They want to hand you their cigarette or their weed or their pills. So I just think I can be a good influence on them. No, you won't. You're not that strong. The book is still right. You can't improve on the Word of God. You can be nice to them. You can be friendly to them. But you don't have to run with them. When they get in their cars and you get in with them, they're not going to turn on the radio to Amazing Grace. And anyway, it's a mystery to me why so many apostolic young people who don't listen to rock music know all the top 40 songs. I just don't understand that. Especially when it comes time to get married. Like, where'd you hear that? Where'd you hear that? What's wrong with giving God a little glory at a wedding?
we've been preaching for years. You have to carefully screen your fellowship. You can't run with just anybody. I don't care how nice they are. And then the Bible also says in Proverbs 13 and 20, a companion of fools shall be destroyed. You can't run with a carousing crowd and stay right. You just can't. I think we've got agreement on that, don't we? Praise the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 5 and 9, amen, really gets nasty when it says that you should not company with fornicators. If somebody's a known fornicator, stay away from them. They got spirits looking for somebody else to attach themselves. And while we can all get worked up about fornicators, it didn't stop there. They went on to say, or covetous, or idolaters, or railers. People that ain't got nothing good to say about nobody or nothing. They've got to run the church down, run the pastor down, run the preaching down. You know somebody like that, I don't care if they go to your church, you stay away from them. And then he says, or drunkard, or an extortioner. And he said, with such an one, no, not he. Don't go to McDonald's with them. Don't go to the coffee house with them. Don't go to the cafeteria. Don't go to their house for a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. They've got more than pie to serve to you. And then it also says, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. To all you bleeding hearts, when the pastor or the preaching of the word of God puts the finger on somebody until they get right with God, avoid them like the plague. There's always those super spiritual folks that think we can succeed where their pastor has failed. Y'all still with me today? I don't think I've said a dangerous thing yet today. But my friends, we have reached the time when it's not just the folks out there that we have to worry about. It's the other Israelites. Gee, I told you. Boy, all of it, right then, real quick, it got tense. Now, a lot of you may not have the problem that I have, and so if you don't, just listen to it 
Do what you want to with it. I'm just preaching my heart. They asked me to come and preach. I can only preach the things I've seen and heard. I can only preach from my experience. And then some churches are blessed to be the only church in town. Only one God church in town. They're the only game in town. And if that's the way it is with you, then just go ahead and go get in the cafeteria line early today. It's not that way with me. Our little church is surrounded by over 30 plus churches of every type and description. I'm not talking about Presbyterian, Baptist, Catholic. I don't even think about them. I'm talking about so-called so one God apostolic churches. Of every type and flavor and description. And I know I'm a mean and hateful preacher. And I know I'm just a real paranoid pastor. But I have to set some boundary lines. And I have to say such foolish things as, Hey, you young folks, I want to know who you're running with. And if you all visit another church service, I want to know where it is. In fact, if I don't announce it, it's probably off limits. I'm getting in hot water is what I'm getting. But they love God. But they got this. But they got that. Man, you should hear that choir. You should see this. You should see that. Hey, man, yet I'm just preaching from personal experience today. I had to tell our church the other night that time has come for us to decide whether we have a right to exist. Because if what we preach and if what we're upholding doesn't matter, then let's close this building down, turn off the lights, quit spending this money for all this upkeep on this building, and let's just disperse. to all the other churches. And let's quit playing games and fooling ourselves and spending all this energy and time and money. If what we're preaching doesn't matter, then why have this church and have that other church that you can drive to so easily on any night? All it takes is turning the steering wheel this way or turning it that way. It won't even take more time to go to church. But if what we preach here is important, and if we want to keep it that way, we cannot 
Okay, where'd my audience go? Because you see, if we let our young folks run around with their young folks, there's going to be blossoming romances. And then one of our young men is going to want to marry one of their girls. And they'll say anything. They'll tell you anything till they say, I do. Oh, yeah, I'll line up. Soon as I get married, I'll quit wearing these split skirts. But it never gets out of their heart. And then all of a sudden you have a transplant in your own congregation that begins to whisper to the other young girls. And the next thing you know, you've got a full-blown problem. So as long as they're marrying into our church, it's okay. But how can I tell a young man it's okay for him to marry a young girl from a loose liberal church and bring her into our church? And I tell our young ladies they can't marry one of their young men and become a part of their church. This is just me. I'm just talking here today. Because I'm going to tell you immediately what will happen. They'll have rings on their fingers. They'll have makeup on their face. They'll be trimming their hair. They'll be wearing their low-cut necklines and their split skirts. And then the family's got to get together for all the special occasions. And there's all this yang-yang that begins to take place. And then your people come back to church and they're sitting there and they got a different look on their face. They got a far-off look in their eyes. Some of y'all don't believe what I'm preaching. It makes a difference who you marry, honey. Do you have enough confidence in your pastor for him to say, you stay away from them? And I told our church, you think I don't like fellowship? You think I don't want fellowship? Amen, with all these churches in the area, don't you think I'd like to have fellowship? I'm a nice guy. I like to have friends. Instead of making them, I'm losing them. I have a shortage right now. Hey, man, it's a dangerous position to be in. You don't think I want fellowship? Why shouldn't I open the doors up and just let our churches begin to fellowship and start going to the same inspirations? Well, tighten up, bless God, I don't care. But I said, you know what will happen? In less than five years, and it won't take that long, in less than five years, we are going to lose our identity. You're not going to be able to tell any difference between this assembly and those assemblies. And once there's no difference, then why exist? 
Amen. I confess, Brother McMullen, that I am probably, amen, to a great degree in that maintenance mode. Amen. And I, I'm seeking for that revival mode. I have that hunger in my heart. But here's what I'm scared about. Our church is 47 years old. I told our people, I challenge you to travel the length and breadth and width of this country and find very many churches that are 47 years old and are still holding the same line they've always held. You can do it for 10. You can do it for 15. You can do it for 20. Amen. But then after a while, there begins to be that erosion. I'm still trying to hold on. And forgive me if we get a little bent out of shape about this. But I do get a little bit worked up when I start hearing about people wanting to find ways to get along with Trinitarians. I'm not trying to get on a stump here today. And I'm not trying to create no trouble. Probably too late anyway. But real one God apostolic people and preachers ought to get worked up about it. I know I've probably told this before, but my dad came out of the Trinitarian movement. Like Brother Desitel was saying, he, my dad received the Holy Ghost when he was still in the Trinity. He didn't even know about the oneness. And then through a process I won't go into, the Lord brought the truth to us. My dad was already a missionary in Brazil, South America. Had one of the fastest growing churches in Brazil. A membership of over 8,000 people. And he was still in his late 20s. And we came out and started over again from scratch. And some people came out with us. And some of them are still alive and still around. I was there just a few weeks ago. Hallelujah. A lot of them have died and gone on to be with the Lord. But those were desperate times, brother. I was just a young boy. I was five years old when my dad was baptized in Jesus' name. I received the Holy Ghost at seven, just two years later. So in some ways, I am first generation. And somehow or another, I fell in love with this. I don't know how, but I fell in love with it. And after years of persecution and opposition, and they tried to have my dad evicted from the country since he was an illegal, uh, not illegal, but he was uh, uh, an, an, an alien there, and uh, he had residential status, but they tried to have him evicted for preaching heresy and false doctrine. Praise the Lord. And anyway, that didn't work out. Instead of having him thrown out, he got 25 minutes on the president's 30-minute radio broadcast to preach to the entire nation of Brazil, there's just one God, his name is Jesus. You've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. And so 
After years of trying and it didn't work, he bumped into one of his old cronies from those days and he, and he was building a huge temple and all they had was the pillars standing. I know I've probably told this before, but all they had was the pillars standing. Amen. And, and, uh, and, and, and the man said, we're having a special service. Come preach it. My dad said, you know good and well I can't preach for you. And he said, why not? He said, because you know what I'm going to preach when I get there. He said, come anyway. Now, this isn't hearsay. I was there. I was there when it happened. And my dad got up in front of I don't know how many thousands of people and preached Acts 2.38. That's the only dialogue you can ever have. And in case somebody thinks I'm out of my place, I'll tell you I am a one God apostolic, Jesus named baptized, Holy Ghost filled preacher, and I don't take very kindly to any bit of that talk. Y'all look like a bunch of scared animals. Go ahead. Go ahead. The day will come when they'll be sitting among us. Nobody wants to offend them by preaching truth. We'll be intermarrying with them. We're going to be losing our identity. And it's all going to be over with. What did you say? What did you say? I'm closing. There's a lot more that I could say, but it boils down to this, ladies and gentlemen. What kind of church do you want your kids and your grandkids to grow up in? I said, what kind of church do you want your kids and your grandkids to grow up in? Do you want them to grow up in a church full of young ladies with their hair cut, makeup, jewelry, split skirts, short skirts, sheer blouses, and the whole deal? I know you're tired of hearing it, aren't you? You want to grow up in a church with a young man with spiked hair? Come to church in t-shirts with suggestive slogans on them. Just in their Reeboks, they just come to play. I was at a church just recently where a young man climbed up on the platform to play the drums and he had just a white t-shirt on, blue jeans and a goatee. What kind of church do you want your kids and grandkids to grow up in? You want to grow up in a church, want them to grow up in a church full of homosexuals, gays and lesbians? 
There's a church right now that was pastored by one of the greatest men who ever walked in Pentecost that today has ministries for the gay people. who marched along with the gays in Washington, and it was in our newspaper in our area, his quote, the time has come for Pentecostal people to show compassion to the homosexual community. And the crazy things can't even figure out that it's not compassion they want, it's acceptance. Do you want gay people to teach your Sunday school classes? You want them to grow up in a church full of double marriage? Where this man sitting over here is married to a woman who used to be this man over here's wife? And this man over here is now married to somebody who used to be married to somebody back there. And they got their kids and their kids and the other kids and there's nothing but confusion. I'm sorry tonight if that's not the kind of church you want your kids to grow up in. The fight is here and the fight is now. And somebody's got to get worked up about it. Do you want them to grow up in a church where there's still prayer bells ringing in the prayer room? Do you want them to grow up in the church where there's still a spirit of worship? Where there's still an anointing? Where there's still holiness and consecration and righteousness and separation? Where the power of God can still fall? I got to quit. I am quitting. Closing. Amen. But, amen. Oh, yeah. They, you know, nowadays it's, uh, it's special lighting effects. It's big screens on both sides. It's all the video technology and so on. You know what the truth of it, of the matter is? Stay with me now. It takes a whole lot of technology to make up for no anointing. And I read about one church boasting about over $100,000 in special audiovisual equipment. I'm not just trying to throw stones, but the statement was so that the audience can have the very finest multimedia experience. If it's a multimedia experience you want, go to Hollywood. If it's a multimedia experience you want, go to Disney World. But when I come to church, I want to feel the presence and the power of God and there is no substitute for it.
We've been preaching it for years. Now it's time for hard decisions for some people. Fellowship is everything. Fellowship is everything. Who you fellowship with is who you will eventually become. If not, we're going to end up with a mongrel race. Amen. I cringe, and I know I've repeated myself in this all so much, and I'm done. But I cringe on Sunday nights when our young folks go to eat at certain restaurants because they are the hangouts. And I've gone a few times, and the young ladies walk in with skirts halfway up their thighs and even split above that. I'm talking about Pentecostal young ladies. Hair cut straight across the back. Makeup, jewelry, young men with long pork chop sideburns, goatees, goofy hairstyles. And they're a rowdy crowd. And I get sick to my stomach when I see our young folks mingling. I know I'm heartless and cruel. It's gotten to the place where some churches in Pentecost, there's two crowds sitting there. There's an older crowd that still has kind of the look. You know what I'm talking about when I say the look. And then there's another crowd there. Rowdy blatant, daring, brazen. Somebody failed somewhere. Amen. I'm sorry, this is what I came with. It's what I feel in my heart. Preaching about the mingling of the Holy Seed. My fellow brethren, dear saints of God, we have something special. We have something unique. We have something extraordinary to protect. Let's protect it at all costs. The end of the story, at least the story of the text that I preach from tonight, thankfully, is a good one. It wouldn't last long, but at least it was good. Ezra assembled the elders, presented his case. They had evidently not even been able to see themselves what was happening. And when it was made apparent to them, they were in shock and horror also. And they began to weep, and they said, just tell us what we need to do. And he said, you take all those strangers, and you carry them back with your children. It was a harsh position. But you know what? 
there were people there they said we're going to do that God give us people in these last days that will do whatever it takes to preserve the holy seed lift your hands and let's talk to the Lord